What is up, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and you're listening to the Messed Up Origins podcast, where I explore the original, often disturbing myths and folktales that inspired your favorite movies, shows, and video games. In this episode, we're learning all about Loki, the trickster god who causes just as much chaos in the original Norse myths as he does in the MCU. From shaving Thor's wife's head, to sneaking out of Asgard and making babies with giants, to bringing about the end of the world. So whether you love to hate him or hate to love him, you're going to be thoroughly entertained by his antics. Longtime fans of my YouTube series will recognize what you're about to hear from the original episode, but the track has been remastered, we've added sound effects, and any visual elements of the presentation have been adjusted for a seamless listening experience. Thank you all for tuning in to John Solo's Messed Up Origins podcast, where we're posting remastered episodes every Monday and Wednesday. Don't forget to rate the show five stars if you enjoy it, and brace yourself for the Messed Up Origins of Loki. Part 1. The Trickster Now, I don't think it needs to be said that Marvel's portrayal of the trickster god is not very true to the mythos. In terms of his personality and general attitude, I think they hit the nail right on the head and the main conflict created by Loki in the first movie is a great representation of his schemes and myth, but the specifics of his backstory are where it feels the most disconnected. For example, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Odin adopts Loki as his son after he defeats the Frost Giants along with their leader Laufey, who is actually Loki's real father but chose to abandon him due to small size. In the actual mythos, his father is a giant, but that giant's name is Farbauti, which means cruel striker. Meanwhile, his mother is the one named Laufey and may be the real reason he was integrated as one of the Aesir gods. Unfortunately, no one knows for sure how he became a member of such an exclusive club, but in Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda, which is one of the few surviving sources we have for Norse mythology, he mentions Laufey in a list of goddesses, so it's possible she was his way in. Regardless, he wasn't thought of as Odin's son, but instead more of an adopted brother, and actually in some versions of the myth that details how humans were created, he fills in the role typically assigned to Odin's brother Vey as the one who gave humans the gift of heat. Only in this case, he's referred to as Lothar, which is theorized to be an older name for Loki. Confused yet? If so, don't worry. Even the Norse experts are baffled by the mythos sometimes. All that's really important is that Loki and Odin have a relationship that goes back farther than many of the other gods in the pantheon, which is part of the reason that he tolerates him despite the amount of trouble he causes. And wow, does he cause some trouble. While he is described as being fair and beautiful of face, just like your boy Tom Hiddleston, he's also said to be evil in disposition <laughs> and very fickle-minded to the point where he surpasses all other men with his ability to cheat and deceive. And I don't think I need to point out, these are not respectable traits for anyone to possess, which may have something to do with the fact that we've never found any evidence that Loki was worshipped like the other gods. Which isn't very surprising when you think about it. After all, he often gets the other Aesir, who we know were worshipped and respected, into deep, even life-threatening trouble that he then has to get them out of with his trickery. In fact, I've got a great example of such shenanigans coming up next section, so let's just get to it. Part 2. The Children of Loki so we already went through who Loki was descended from, but now we should talk about his descendants, because almost every one plays an important role in Norse mythology. The first two that I should mention are Vali and Narfi. We don't know who he made Vali with, but Narfi is a son by Sigyn, the goddess who's considered to be his main squeeze, though all three of them are only really involved in one particular myth that we're going to talk about later. Next are his three children by Anger Botha, the giantess. Their names were Jormungundr, Hel, and Fenrir. These are the ones that, in the words of the old 
world texts are going to cause much mischief for the gods one day, and that's putting it lightly. You see, that mischief they're going to play a hand in is Ragnarok, aka the end of the fucking world as we know it. And Odin knew about this from various prophecies and dreams that he and the other gods had, so something had to be done that would let them keep an eye on these chillins'. So, Odin sent some of the Aesir to retrieve Loki's children from the land of the giants where they were being raised, and then moved them to places that would be somewhat less problematic. Jormungundr, also known as the World Serpent, was thrown into the Midgard Sea where he would eventually grow to be so large that he encircled the whole world and could bite his own tail. He and Thor are destined to fight to the death once Ragnarok comes. Hel, Loki's daughter, who looks half like a corpse and half like a healthy young lady, was given the job of overseeing the spirits of the dead from each of the nine worlds. Most people interpret this as her being sent below the earth into the region that would become known as Helheim, but for some reason Snorri writes that she's sent to Niflheim which is the primordial world of ice. Interestingly, Snorri is also the only one who describes life after death as being full of cold, bitter winds and misery unless you died in battle in honor of Odin. I'm not nearly smart enough to say there's for sure a connection there, but to me it sounds like he sort of repurposed Niflheim after it served its initial purpose of combining with the heat of Muspelheim and forming the mass of ice in the Ganungagap. By the way, if none of the words I just said make any sense to you, I've got a video or two that can help you out. Now, Loki's third child with Angerbotha, Fenrir, had the special attention of Odin because he specifically was prophesied to kill the Allfather during Ragnarok. As a result, they had to put him somewhere that they knew he wouldn't be a threat to anyone and bound him up on an island in the middle of a lake with a sword lodged in his mouth to prop it open. And so much saliva flowed from his open mouth that it formed a river called Vaan, which is Old Norse for hope. Kind of an ironic name, don't you think? Now there's one more son of Loki that a lot of you have been asking me to talk about since I started covering Norse mythology a few months ago. His name is Sleipnir, and he has what may be the weirdest and funniest conception myth we've ever talked about. See, in the early days of Asgard, just after Midgard and Valhalla were established, a builder came to the Aesir and offered to build a wall that could protect Asgard against mountain giants and frost giants, and he offered to do it in just three seasons. In exchange, he wanted the beautiful goddess Freya as his wife, along with the sun and moon. It was quite a hefty paycheck that the Aesir weren't exactly willing to agree to. That is, until Loki convinced them to change the terms. The builder would only have one season to build the wall, and he could only have help from his stallion Svathofari. With the odds seemingly in their favor, the gods agreed, but they soon learned there was more to this builder than initially appeared. He started working on his project on the first day of winter and made a lot of progress surprisingly quickly, largely due to the help of his noble steed. However, the Aesir couldn't back out of the deal or impede the Builder in any way as they made a number of sacred oaths, and soon they started to blame Loki for this predicament and told him that if he didn't figure out how to save Freya, they would kill him. Well, nothing motivates Loki like the possibility of suffering repercussions for his actions, so that same evening, he enacted his plan. While Svathofari and the Builder were collecting more stone, a rather attractive lady horse ran out of the forest, distracting Svathofari and causing him to chase after her and disappear into the trees. Without his most necessary assistant, the Builder knew he could never move the massive stones that he was using to build the wall and became furious. So furious that he revealed his true form as a mountain giant. Well, now the Aesir had exactly what they needed. Claiming the Builder hid his true nature and that the agreement was made under false pretenses, they said they didn't owe him anything and told him to kick rocks. As you would expect, the Builder wasn't too happy about this, but before he could do anything about it, 
Thor decided to give him a payment of his own and send his hammer flying right through his skull, smashing it to bits. Meanwhile, the text said that Loki had such dealings with Svathofari that a few months later, he gave birth to an eight-legged foal that would go on to be called Slepnir and become Odin's trusted companion. You heard that right, boys and girls. Loki the horse. Or I guess I should say that he let the horse him. Either way, I would love to see the Marvel Cinematic Universe explain how Slepnir came to be. Part three, Loki's wager. So as we saw in the last section, Loki tends to make decisions that put the Aesir in some kind of danger, but sometimes these decisions have unexpected positive consequences, and this is one of those times. The following story, which doesn't have an official title, but is often referred to as Loki's wager, comes from the second part of the Prose Edda in a section called that. Skaldskaparmal? Skaldskaparmal? I have no idea, but it translates to the language of poetry. It has an overarching narrative that follows a dialogue between Ajir, the personification of the sea, and Bragi, the god of poetry, where they discuss a number of Norse myths along with the nature of Nordic poetry. To put it simply, you can think of it as a thesaurus of poetry, or even more simply, an answer key that explains what is meant by certain terms. For example, Ajir asks how the sky shall be referred to, and Bragi responds with all of its nicknames, Amir's skull, Erden of the Dwarf, Dwarves, land of sun and moon and stars, you get the idea. Well, somewhere in this section, Ajir asks why gold is called Sif's hair, and the answer is explained by breaking down the following myth. One day Thor wakes up to see that his wife, the typically golden-haired goddess Sif, is completely bald, and it turns out that Loki is responsible, so Thor threatens to break every single bone in the trickster's body if he doesn't fix the situation. So the newly motivated Loki goes to the dwarves known as Evaldi sons and persuades them to make three gifts for the gods, Skidbladner the ship, Gunnir the spear, and of course, beautiful new hair. Meanwhile, he also goes to the dwarves named Brock and Sindri, or Eitri, and wagers his own head that they wouldn't be able to make three treasures equally as good as the other dwarves. Well, Brock and Sindri figured the head of a god would definitely be a useful crafting material somewhere down the line, so they agreed and got to work. First, Sindri laid a pigskin in the furnace and told Brock to blow the bellows and not stop before he could take the skin out of the furnace. But while they were working, a fly landed on on Brock's hand and stung him. Fortunately, he was able to focus on his craft and the new item turned out flawless, but they still had two more to go. Sindri put some gold in the furnace and gave Brock the same instructions, and this time the fly landed on his neck and stung him even worse. Even still though, he managed to stay focused and their finished project was perfect. So they get back to it and what do you know, but the fly lands on Brock's eyelids this time and stings him so much that blood starts running into his eyes. And while he only stopped bellowing for a second so he could wipe it away, way, that alone was enough to damage what they were working on. Despite that though, their time was up and they had no choice but to deliver their imperfect goods to Asgard for the contest where they'd be judged by Odin, Thor, and Frey. Loki presented the treasures made by Evaldi's sons. Odin received Gunnir, the spear that would never miss its mark. Frey was given Skithblothner, the ship that would always have a fair wind and could be folded together like a napkin. And Thor received the golden hair, which he gave to Siv and grew as soon as it was placed on her head. 
As you would expect, the gods were all impressed and pleased with their gifts, but then it was time for Brock to produce the treasures that he and Sindri made. The god Frey received the boar named Gullenbursti that they made from the pig skin. This bad boy could run through the air and overseas faster than any horse could on land, and its golden bristles could shine through any darkness. The Allfather was given the golden ring Draupnir, which every ninth night would produce eight other golden rings as heavy and solid as itself. And last but not least, Thor received the hammer Mjolnir, which could never be damaged no matter how hard he swung it, would always return no matter how far he threw it, and could even shrink down so he could hide it anywhere on his person. But John, I thought you said they messed up one of the projects. Oh, but they did. See, the hammer was supposed to have a much longer handle, but thanks to Loki, <coughs> I mean, the fly's interference, the handle was much shorter than expected. Despite that imperfection, the gods all agreed the hammer was the best of all the treasures and, to Loki's horror, declared Brock and Sindri the winners, meaning he owed them his head. Naturally, the trickster tried bribing his way out of the deal, but Brock said there was no way that was gonna happen. Then Loki said that Brock would have to catch him first and zipped away in his magic shoes that could run through the air and over the sea. It was up to Thor to catch him and bring him back, but then Loki tried breaking his agreement on a technicality, saying he owed them his head, but they weren't allowed to touch his neck, meaning that collecting the debt would be impossible. At this point, Brock had had enough and decided he'd meet him somewhere in the middle. Instead of harvesting his head, he simply sewed his mouth shut to give everyone some peace and quiet. An appropriate punishment for Loki, if I do say so myself. But check this out. Back in 1950, a stone was discovered on a beach near Snaptoon, Denmark that was carved around the year 1000 and featured a mustachioed face along with scarred lips that has since been identified as Loki and considered a reference to this very story. The stone was believed to be a hearthstone in the the nozzle of the bellows, like the one Brock was using, would be inserted into the hole in the front of the stone while air from the bellows pushed flames through the hole on top. It really makes you think about the theory suggested by Jacob Grimm of Brothers Grimm Infamy that in the early days of the mythos, Loki may have originally been a god of heat and fire that was eventually combined with another deity. It would make sense when you put that theory together with the idea I mentioned earlier that Lothar, the god who gave humans heat, may have been Loki. Also, this may be a bit of a stretch, but that carving makes me wonder if that's at all close to what Brock and Sindri had in mind when they tried to take Loki's head. Like, what better way to spread your reputation as legendary blacksmiths than have visitors to your workshop see that you're using the head of a god as a hearthstone? Part four, the death of Baldur. One of Loki's best-known myths centers around the death of Baldur, the most beautiful and perfect Aesir to have ever lived. Now, we actually talked about this in great detail last episode, so if you want to hear it in its entirety, I'd recommend you watch that, but here's the condensed version. Basically, what happens is Baldur has terrible dreams about him dying and the world ending soon after, and because in Norse culture, dreams were prophetic, the other Aesir were pretty concerned about this. As a result, his mother traveled around the cosmos and extracted promises from everything fire, water, the earth, the air, nothing was overlooked except for a single plant, mistletoe. And Loki managed to figure out this one weakness by disguising himself as an old woman and talking to Frigg about it. The trickster then traveled west of Valhalla to collect some mistletoe and either turned it into a spear or a simple dart, depending on the version, 
then came up with a plan to kill Baldur without doing it himself. See, the Aesir had recently made a game out of Baldur's invulnerability and would take turns trying to hit him with various objects and weapons only for them to miss or destroy themselves to avoid hurting him. And it was a great time for everyone except Baldur's blind brother Hod, who couldn't participate. Seeing an opportunity, Loki gave Hod the dart he made and said, this is your chance to be included. Go ahead and throw it at your brother. Everyone's gonna have a big old laugh when it bounces off. Only when Hod threw it, nobody laughed. All of the gods went silent as the dart penetrated Baldur's heart and he fell to the ground dead. And if you want further proof that Loki's trickery had no limits, the gods were given a chance by the goddess Hell to actually bring Baldur back under the condition that everything in the world agreed to cry for him. And as unlikely as that sounds, they almost succeeded until Loki got in the way. The Aesir approached a giantess named Thok, who many believe was Loki in disguise, and he, she, it refused to weep, and as a result, Baldur would be trapped in hell until the end of days. The story doesn't end here though. Not long after the death of Baldur, we have the events of a poem called Lokasena, which can be translated to Loki's flighting. For those who don't know, a flighting was a contest of insults. So basically a Norse rap battle and was actually pretty common in their culture. We don't have time to go through every single insult he throws out in this episode, but to summarize, he basically gets wasted and goes for the jugular every time he speaks, even if what he's saying isn't totally truthful. He claims Frigg had an affair with Odin's brothers, says Freya had sex with her own brother, makes fun of Tyr for having his hand bitten off by his son Fenrir, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. The only reason that Odin doesn't kick him out as soon as he starts berating everyone is that Loki reminds him that in the days of old, they mixed their blood together and swore an oath that they would always drink together. Eventually, Thor shows up on the scene, but it's just more of the same thing, and since Thor isn't the most articulate individual, all of his insults resort to threatening Loki with his hammer. After the events of the dinner conclude, Loki realizes that strategically, it may not have been a smart move to insult every single one of the gods. So he hides out in a little cabin in the mountains where he spends his days disguised as a salmon that swims in a nearby river. It doesn't take long for the Aesir to track him down though, and they punish him and his family in one of the worst ways you can imagine. After transforming his son Vali into a wolf and making him tear apart his own brother Narfi, they took Narfi's intestines and used them to bind Loki to three big rocks, then turned them into chains. After this, the goddess Skadi took a serpent and hung it over Loki so its venom would drop onto his face and his wife Sigyn was cursed to stand by him holding a dish to catch the venom. It gave him a little relief here and there, but every so often she'd have to dump the venom out and when she did that, his face was exposed to the snake. Every time a drop of venom made contact with his skin, he would jerk his body so violently that it would cause earthquakes, but even still, he could never break the cursed chains until the dawn of Ragnarok. Part five, Ragnarok. So if you've been watching my Norse series since the beginning, you'll probably notice that I mention Ragnarok in pretty much every episode, but there's good reason for it. The end of life as we know it was a huge part of the religion and a unique part at that. So much so that I'm eventually going to make an entire video breaking it down. That being said, I want to explore the event a bit in this episode because of the special role Loki plays and how it unfolds and the creative spin that Marvel put on that role in their movie, Thor Ragnarok. Now, according to the actual myth, the death of Baldur is what triggers Ragnarok, where in the movie, it's the death of Odin. Though Loki is technically responsible for both, as he's the one who put a curse on Odin, which took immense strength for him to break and took its toll on his overall health. Another big difference is that when Ragnarok starts in the myth, all the chains in the world will be broken. That means any bound up monster, including Loki and his son Fenrir, will be freed to unleash havoc. Then Loki leads the charge along with his children, Fenrir, the world serpent, and his daughter, 
Hel, who has an army of her own to fight against the fallen warriors of Valhalla. In the movie, Odin's death also triggers the breaking of chains, but instead of chains, it's the lock on his daughter Hela's prison. And instead of Loki being the one who leads the charge against Asgard, it's her along with her old steed Fenris Wolf and their army of undead soldiers. Another point of comparison I actually find to be pretty funny is that in the myth, Loki is the one steering the ship that takes he and his armies to the battlefield, a wide open plane called Vigred. But in the movie, he shows up on a spaceship to save the remaining Asgardians. Your savior is here! Talk about a change of heart. In the movie, he's also the one who summons the fire giant Surtur by combining his crown with the eternal flame. And while Surtur does show up in the myth to destroy basically anything that's left over after the battle, his arrival has nothing to do with Loki. Now I'm sad to say that despite the importance of Loki's character and the influence he has over a multitude of myths, his death is pretty anticlimactic. With Odin, we're told he's swallowed whole by Fenrir before his death is avenged by Vali. With Thor, we learn he managed to kill the world serpent, but only took nine steps before collapsing dead himself, either from exposure to the serpent's venom or pure exhaustion. When it comes to Loki's death, we get a single line and it goes as follows. <clears throat> Loki fights with Heimdall and they kill each other. That's it. Nine words is all we need, apparently. A bit disappointing, but I guess the MCU took it upon themselves to make up for this somewhat lackluster ending by killing Loki three separate times. Unlike the MCU, though, in the real mythology, the trickster's death is the end of his story. So let me just say thank you for stopping by and listening to the Messed Up Origins podcast. I hope you found it entertaining, enlightening, and a little bit horrifying. Remember to make your sacrifice to the algorithm gods by rating our show five stars and let us know what you think by hitting us up directly on Instagram or Twitter, where you can find us under the Messed Up Origins handle. And remember, if you're craving more Messed Up Origins, you can also check out my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first.